the world isn't standing still. China isn't standing still. The region isn't standing still. Technology isn't standing still. Europe isn't standing still. When we take this pause, what we're really doing is losing momentum. What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortevech of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortevech. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, And today we will be discussing trade integration and the Americas. Since July last year, a big new trade agreement has gone into force between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Of course, I'm talking about USMCA. USMCA has replaced NAFTA and is currently being implemented. Now, two years before that, in 2018, three Latin American countries signed up to the CPTPP, a Trans-Pacific Trade Initiative that excludes China, but also excludes the United States. At the same time, for most, if not all, Latin American countries, China remains their main trading partner. Now, amid discussions about nearshoring, resilience of supply chains post-COVID, and the green transition, It really is about time that we focus on how these trends are impacting trade in the Americas. It's also worth zooming in on USMCA and trying to get grips with what the deal means for the region. And to do this today, I'm joined by three fantastic experts. First of all, I'm joined from New York by Shannon O'Neill. Shannon is the Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies and Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's an expert on Latin America, global trade, U.S.-Mexico relations, amongst other things. It's fantastic that she can join us. Secondly, I'm joined from Washington by Steve Liston. Steve is Senior Director at the Washington, D.C. Office of the Council of the Americas. The Council of the Americas is an international business organization that aims to promote development, open markets, the rule of law, and democracy throughout the Western Hemisphere. And at the council, he manages the Trade Advisory Group. Steve also has a long career as a U.S. Foreign Service officer working in the region. And finally, last but not least, I'm thrilled to be joined by Alvaro Santos. Alvaro is Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Center for the Advancement of the Rule of Law in the Americas at Georgetown Law School. His work focuses on international trade, economic development, transnational labor law, and drug policy, all very interesting. But why we also really want him to join this podcast is that in 2018, he served as deputy chief negotiator of the USMCA agreement for the government of Mexico. So all to all three of you, fantastic that you can join. Let's start by taking a look at USMCA first, shall we? It's Washington's latest trade deal and the last trade deal to be agreed in Latin America. 
Perhaps, Alvaro, since you negotiated it, can you just bring us up to speed what, from your perspective, really the upsides or the main innovations of USMCA as opposed to NAFTA? And uh, perhaps also shed some light on what the idea behind USMCA was. Thank you. It's really good to be here. So let me just mention four aspects of USMCA that I think are salient and, and, and improvement. One is better labor enforcement mechanisms. Second one is a change in the investment law regime. So the a reduction of investor rights in uh, the investor state dispute settlement system. A third is review mechanism that can uh, allow countries to update and, and revise the treaty down the line. And finally, new rules of origin for auto on auto parts. I think this last point is probably more mixed than a clear benefit, but it's also an important change that distinguishes UMCA from previous trade agreements. So there's many more issues, but I think these four strike me as really important and in some ways new compared to what we had before. Right. And perhaps to you, Shannon, I mean, we're a year into USMCA. It's it's being implemented. Are there any issues that have emerged so far? Are there any wrinkles that need to be ironed over? What's been the perception of the deal so far? Well, thank you for having me. It's great to join all of you. And there there are some wrinkles. I, I would just add to Alvaro's start that, you know, one of the interesting things I think about USMCA and its formation is one that you see it lean toward manage trade, particularly on the rules of origin. So that's a bit of a shift in U.S. policy as as well as policy in, in all three countries agreeing to that. And the other perhaps brighter spot here is that you saw in the U.S. Congress bipartisan agreement on trade. And that is something new, at least over the last number of years, where you saw both sides of the aisle come together and agree on this trade agreement. And in part, that is because of the things Alvaro mentioned that were added this time around. And that brought particularly Democrats to the table. And so that is where we've seen movement over this last year, is that you have new labor enforcement mechanisms, you have a change in the investor dispute settlement, and those are really the areas where you're seeing a lot of activism. So you've already seen the activation of this labor rapid response mechanism. So questioning some labor practices in a factory in Mexico, and we've seen back and forth happen fairly quickly. And some, it looks like resolution on that front. And then we are likely to see in the months to come testing of the um, investor dispute settlements and particularly with regard to Mexico's energy sector and some of the rule changes that are happening there and what it means for U.S.-based companies that have invested there. So I do think what we're going to see in the next months and probably the next few years is a testing of USMCA to see if this new kind of trade agreement that was negotiated actually works And if it does, then I do think the United States will use this as a model as it thinks about trade throughout the Americas and and perhaps more globally. And just back to you, Alvaro, I mean, this is perhaps the way the U.S. sees this. How has it been received in Mexico so far? Well, I think it was received with great relief in the sense that there was a real chance that, you know, NAFTA would be scrapped. And so I think that there was general agreement that it was good to have an agreement in North America, and that was important. I think the reception is more mixed in terms of how it's currently being implemented. I think there's enthusiasm about the labor provisions by some sectors, clearly, obviously, workers. And I agree with Shannon that it's actually 
been effective so far and that we're seeing resolution, you know, one of the cases that there are others seem to have been resolved. But there's also questions on some, you know, this grantment, particularly on the energy sector that Shannon also referred to, because the government has a policy of energy that might be at odds with investors' expectations in the region, and now the agreement is going to be tested there. So overall, as a framework, I think it's been very well received. Now we have to see in particular areas how it plays out. But I think there's a lot of expectation about how it's going to work out. Steve, I, I see you nodding along. Uh, I mean, I assume that means you're you're in agreement. But do you think that USMCA is now sort of the, the gold standard for trade deals in the region? Or how should we see what USMCA means also for the future of US trade policy? Yeah, and maybe not in the region. And, and thank you for having me here today. It's great to be with you all. But maybe not in the region, but certainly for the US, it is right now the pretty much the gold standard. We didn't mention the digital chapter, which is new. And the fact that now these provisions that have been mentioned on environment and, and labor have been brought into the agreement, they're no longer side agreements. So I think in this bipartisan nature that Shannon mentioned, means that this agreement really sets a standard for the U.S. going forward. And we've already seen some of the digital provisions being pursued in these what were called phase one agreements with Brazil, Ecuador, others. So I do think for the U.S. it sets a standard. I think what it means for the region is a little unclear at the moment because U.S. trade policy is unclear. Are we going to just circle the wagons around North America? Or do we really want to go farther and make the most of U.S. economic power in the region and, and really seek to have a regional trade area? Maybe not an FTAA, a free trade area of the Americas, but maybe something else that brings in more countries who would like to do more trade with the U.S. I guess that also raises the question to what extent the current U.S. administration has an appetite for trade deals beyond sort of a an accurate implementation and enforcement of existing trade deals. I mean, how do you see that? I mean, what are the two of you are sitting in Washington? I mean, what are the vibes you're picking up in relation to whether USMCA can be a, a model for something that is then replicated elsewhere? I mean, is there an appetite for US trade policy to move in that direction? Or is it more perhaps focused on preserving what's already been agreed? I'm seeing enforcement right now more than an effort to move out. I think most of us in the trade community hope that this will be the beginning of something, but I I can't say that I've seen a huge interest in that at the moment. You know, if if a trade deal is like a marriage, the honeymoon was pretty quick because we've been living together for 20 years already. And now we're in the newlywed phase of trying to figure out what does this all mean and how do we live together under this new roof? And I think we haven't yet gone to the place where people are saying, all right, how do we take this and move it elsewhere? There's some of that elsewhere, I think, outside the region that is not in the Americas. But in the Americas themselves, I think we haven't seen it yet. We're hoping that by the summit of the Americas next year that the U.S. hosts, that maybe that will be one of the issues on the table of what do we do on trade. And and just pivoting to you, Alvaro, Mexico, of course, doesn't just have USMCA in its back pocket. It also has CPTPP. How should we see those two big deals? I mean, do they function side by side? How? What's the Mexican appreciation of the value of these two deals? Do they complement each other or is there actually perhaps some room for, um, for improvement? Do they clash? How does it look from your point of view? 
Well, I think that in some way they complement each other, but there's also points of tension. I mean, one clear point of tension is precisely rules of origin for autos and automobiles, where, where you see in CPTPP was actually a decrease in the content that needed to be originated in that uh, Trans-Pacific Alliance to enjoy, you know, duty-free access. And what you see in USMCA, it's actually the opposite. It's an increase in the content of the value that needs to originate in the region to enjoy duty-free. So what you see in some ways in USMCA is a move away from CPTPP in that regard, and an emphasis on regional production vis-a-vis other supply chains, particularly Asia. And so I think that that's a clear difference. I would just say, I think I, I see CPTPP as the culmination or the apex of like three decades of uh, consensus view on trade liberalization. And USMCA, to some extent, continues that in some areas, but I think it begins a departure in the areas that we talked about. And just to touch briefly on your previous question, I don't see much appetite for continuing trade agreements in the region, but in the US and maybe other countries in the Americas. I think there's a moment of kind of reflection and pause perhaps because of the backlash against globalization and the sense that you have to deal with some of the distributional consequences that trade has brought in. And there's a real question about how can we make globalization more inclusive? And I think USMCA in some ways begins to respond to that concern, even though not fully. And so to me, we're going to see some pause before we see a new wave, if we see that, of trade agreements that go in a different direction. It's my sense. Yeah, I think one thing that's worth just putting on the table is while the U.S. generally pulled back over the last few years in terms of free trade agreements, I mean, USMCA was was renegotiating agreement that was already there. And one, as, as Alvaro just said, was more towards a managed agreement rather than free trade. Actually, the region did not stand still during this time, right? So we've talked about CPTPP. Many countries joined that. We saw that the EU and South American countries negotiated a Mercosur agreement. Now the ratification of that has been stopped because of the retrograde environmental policies of Brazil, which don't look to change. We also saw Canada negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU. So the rest of the Western Hemisphere actually have been trying to push forward a free trade agreement or free trade agenda around the world while the United States has pulled back. And I I do agree with Alvaro, though. I think we are at this moment where we're not sure where it's going. Are you going to see more regional agreements? You know, you have RCEP and others in Asia that have come to to being. Are you going to see more global agreements or the CPTPPs? Or are people just going to sort of take what they have and try to enforce them, which seems to be the position where the United States is? So I think there's a lot of moving parts around here. And Latin America, while it has been, many of these countries have been protagonists in many ways signing these agreements. These are middle-income countries or smaller countries in the overall global flows, and they're not going to be really the ones driving the agenda. They're going to have to pick and choose where they can fit in as these other bigger manufacturing blocks you know, figure out how they're going to interact with each other. Right, right. And that'll bring us also to the China question, which I want to ask after I give Steve a chance to respond. Yeah, just to say that the the problem, I think we all three have identified this problem that this is a moment of pause, you know, sort of looking in and how do we make work what we've got. The world isn't standing still. China isn't standing still. 
The region isn't standing still. Technology isn't standing still. Europe isn't standing still. When we take this pause, what we're really doing is losing momentum and losing the ability, not just the United States, but the Western Hemisphere in general, to project when we don't continue to update these agreements and expand them. I think our hope is that we will get a vision for how to expand them, even given the issues that are out there. Alvaro? Yes, I mean, I think that Steve is right that obviously uh, the world moves on and in some ways trade continues. I think what I want to distinguish trade agreements from, you know, trade relations. I, I think that there was a time where there was a lot of confidence that a model of trade agreement was useful, which included investment. And uh, that was somewhat the recipe for economic growth. And so countries just signed a lot of them embarked on a policy of trade liberalization that followed that model. I think that's where there's much less confidence now and more doubt about whether that actually can achieve what it promised. And so that, that's where, in my view, we're seeing some pause and rethinking. And so that's why I expect that it'll be some time before we see a new engagement in just signing more trade agreements. But there's many other ways to engage in trade relations. And Steve mentioned, you know, Asia and China. Well, they're also thinking about different models of framing uh, trade relations and investment relations that should make us think about different ways of doing that other than signing the type of trade agreements that, that we're used to. No, that's that's excellent. And, and in some respects, we see in Europe also a, a wouldn't necessarily call it a hesitance, but there's at least difficulties in, in keeping momentum for signing new trade agreements. I mean, there's a big emphasis in Europe as well on enforcement and implementation also to get skeptical domestic audiences on board and to show the value of, of some of these trade deals that are signed. So I don't think what's happening in the Americas is necessarily exceptional, but I do want to pivot now to how China fits into this. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Shannon O'Neill, Alvaro Santos, and Steve Liston about trade integration in the Americas. At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm going to continue our conversation with Shannon O'Neill, Alvaro Santos, and Steve Liston, and talk about trade integration in the Americas. As I mentioned in my introductory comments, we have two, two big trade deals. Both of them exclude China, but China is the big trading partner of many of the countries in the Western Hemisphere. How should we think about Latin America's position? Is it fair to describe Latin America as being squeezed between the US and China? And if not, then how should we look at it? But if it is, 
What does that mean for Latin American trade policy? Any takers? I'll start. <laughs> so I think there's two aspects there. I think there is what China means for Latin America itself, leaving aside the geopolitics of the United States. You know, China has proved a real double-edged sword for the region. It has a huge benefit in that it buys lots of the region's exports, particularly commodities. It has become one of the bigger investors. And so Latin America needs, many of these countries need roads and rails and grids and all sorts of things. And, and China's, both their finances as well as their companies have been many that are there to invest and, and have the money that other countries um, don't have or don't and also have fewer strings attached in terms of getting that money and, and getting projects up and going. So there has been a big benefit in terms of investment and in terms of commercial ties from China. That said, in the end, China is a fundamental competitor particularly to Latin America's manufacturing sectors. And for those countries that have aspirations to climb the value-added chain to become producers of more advanced manufacturing and the like, China poses a real challenge. And if you look at some of the economic studies, and you know, Danny Roderick has become famous for this idea of premature deindustrialization. So as you know, middle-income countries move up towards advanced or, or high incomes, their industrial sectors decline faster than they have in previous past. Latin America is one of the biggest victims around the world of that, and in large part because of the challenge of China. China wants to import commodities from Latin America and then send back manufactured goods and not have those made in the region themselves. So there is a challenge there just for Latin American countries. As you think about trade with China or investment from China, it has lots of great benefits but it also in the medium to long term, as you think about supporting your own middle class and creating jobs and creating dynamism in your economy, they're real challenges. So, so there's just a direct Latin America-China issue. Then there's the U.S.-China geopolitical tensions and how that plays out in Latin America. And that, too, is something that most nations have been able to balance so far. They've been able to remain commercial partners with China while still having ties to the United States. But I do think we're going to see more issues coming forward. So, you know, the most obvious one high profile is what happens with telecom grids, whether Huawei gets to bid on or win auctions, and do you have sort of safe, secure networks that could link into U.S. networks? But I think we're going to see this as, you know, the U.S. starts looking at its own supply chains. There's going to be questions about who controls the lithium mines in Latin America or copper or graphite or all sorts of critical minerals that go into modern technologies. There are going to be a lot of issues here where I think this navigation between these two big powers may become a bit more difficult as we move forward. Steve, you wanted to come in on this. Yeah, I'd agree with everything that, uh, that Shannon has said. I think, unfortunately, there is a danger that Latin America, again, becomes sort of a, a place where the big powers are trying to play against each other. That would be unfortunate. And I hope the United States, at least, can resist that. But it also does give them a little bit more leverage. I don't think there's an option of saying you have to choose at this point because China is such a big trading partner for most of these countries. And, and it's not just China and the U.S. either. I think especially in the digital space, Europe plays a really important role in terms of the model. What kind of model are we going to create in this new digital economy? And for most of the countries in Latin America, there's a big question mark. Which model do you prefer, not only on digital economy, but trade in general? You know, those companies that are investing, those Chinese companies, they're basically agents of the state, right? I mean, if the state wants to make them agents. So the, the question that a lot of Latin countries have for them is what kind of trading partner do you want? What kind of values do you want to see 
being exercised by investors in your country? Who do you deal the best with? And I think those are becoming more transparent as everyone gets more experience uh, in trading with China and in Chinese investing and so on. So I think we're still, the jury's still out on where this all goes, but China's there, it's there to stay. But I do think Latin American, especially trade ministers, economy ministers and so on, really need to understand what their options are and and how to play those. I'm just curious, Alvaro, is this something that you picked up when you were in government in in Mexico? Is this a tension or a debate that's being held? Is that, are these trade-offs being made, so to speak, that Shannon and Steve are hinting at? Yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely a tension and and Mexico in that regard, you know, has opportunities, but also challenges. I wanted to add to what Shannon and, and Steve have said that in some ways, NAFTA and now the USMCA, but NAFTA has also been squeezed by China. So it's not just Latin America, because if you look at the level of integration in North America, you saw like kind of trend towards greater integration from even some years pre-NAFTA 1991 up to 2000. And then what you see is a process of disintegration where China basically came on board in, in the global trade scene. And so that's really striking. So much so that in 2018, we were almost at levels of the beginning of NAFTA in terms of integration. And so, you know, when you compare some of NAFTA's trade in total world trade. So basically here, there's a real question about what's the strategy for North America vis-a-vis China? Is there one? In USMCA, there isn't really much. I mean, there is this clause that I find very lamentable about the possibility of, of canceling the agreement or one party opting out of the agreement if the other parties sign a trade agreement with you know, a non-market economy, which is basically uh, a euphemism for China. But I don't think there is a real strategy for North America on how to engage with China if we are thinking strategically about trade. And so I, I do think there's a squeeze. And I think each of the countries, both the United States is basically engaging with China on its own and then Mexico to some extent as well. But that is going to be like a a big area where we're going to need to think about what's the position of these countries vis-a-vis China and particularly if they want to do something jointly about the region in its trade with China. But if there's not a sort of a strategy of the region, maybe events are pushing the region in that direction. And I'm thinking particularly of sort of the discussion post-COVID of making supply chains more resilient or bringing back production, the whole nearshoring debate that we're currently seeing. Shannon, I know you recently published on this. I was fascinated to find the term friendshoring in that as well, which has a nice sort of foreign policy angle to it. Is there a future for nearshoring in Latin America? Let me just put it out out in the open like that. I mean, is that is the future for Latin American trade integration? Is that nearshoring and bringing back supply chains to be able to feed the U.S. Uh, the the U.S. market? Sure. Well, I'll start, and I think the short answer is yes, but and so let me explain. <laughs> so we talked about this drift and and sort of pause in in what's happening in trade policy around the Western Hemisphere, and I think there are two things that could restart a more active trade policy. So one is this interest in rejiggering and moving around supply chains. So part of that is COVID and what we saw with the pandemic. Part of it is huge transportation costs and the challenges of containers moving across seas. But a big part of it, particularly from the U.S. perspective, is 
this widening of the aperture of what we define as national security interests. And so rather than just sort of hard, kinetic, military type things, now we're talking about all kinds of economic issues. And the Biden administration released in the beginning of the summer this supply chain report. There's more reports to come, but looking at four critical sectors, looking at semiconductors, looking at pharmaceuticals, looking at critical minerals, particularly going to technologies, and looking at electric vehicle batteries or large capacity batteries. So you're seeing really a whole focus across the U.S. economy or the economy generally. And this idea that national security depends on having production nearer to home, as opposed to having it in Asia, particularly so and in China, to be very specific. So here, what the U.S. is going to find when they try to operationalize this is you can't bring it all back to the United States. One, because some of those minerals and things just don't exist in the United States. But two, you are going to need geography and proximity things being spread out not too far, but not too near is going to be really useful. So I do think there's a huge opportunity for Latin America, Mexico, of course, but other countries in Latin America to step in. One, as you know, we're talking about friend shoring. You want to send production to places that we trust. Latin American countries have long been allies of the United States in, in lots of different ways. Two is actually the United States has more free trade agreements in the region than it does pretty much anywhere else in the world. So you already have preferential access set up for factories that might sit up in these countries or mines or other kinds of facilities. And three, you have this geographic proximity. So I think that is one issue that may reactivate this agenda is this need or perceived need in the United States for national security reasons to bring back a whole bunch of economic activity. The other thing I want to put on the table, which is not quite yet, but will start to bite the United States, I'm taking this from a U.S. perspective but where Latin America fits in is Well, the United States has pulled back. The rest of the world has been signing free trade agreements with each other. And a lot of those are being ratified. A lot of those are coming into place. And what U.S.-based companies or even North American-based companies are going to start finding is that companies and factories and farms that are based in other countries are going to have preferential access to some of the biggest markets, you know, to the next billion consumers that come online, particularly in Asia. They're going to find that their goods are a couple percentage points more expensive because they still pay tariffs and their competitors in other countries don't pay tariffs. So I think that hit that U.S. companies or North American companies are going to take all of a sudden may start activating governments to get back in the trade game. And there, too, I think as the U.S. looks to allies, They will find Latin America because we already have free trade agreements there, that there will be places to leverage. And the last thing I want to say before I turn over to my fellow panelists here is one thing we have seen from history is, unfortunately, is the U.S. is usually reactive, not proactive on these issues. And so if you look at the history of NAFTA, it was Mexico that brought the idea of a free trade agreement to the United States. Now, The United States was open to it for a whole lot of reasons at the time and so went forward with it. But it's hard for me to imagine that the Biden administration or whomever comes after him would be really the one actively putting this on the agenda. So really, it's Latin American nations and their leadership that probably need to come to Washington with a proposal to take advantage of what's happening or to help the region as a general play in this larger global trade field. So the conditions might be there, but then the question is whether this is going to be a door that Latin American countries walk through. I want to bring in Steve on this. Yeah, two things. Just agree that the moment is here in part uh, because of what's going on in trade, in part because of the China issue in the United States. I think there's two issues that we're seeing with regard to the, the Western Hemisphere. The first is simply U.S. domestic politics and It's just so messy right now. I mean, it's really hard, even though there's bipartisan agreement that we need to do something about China, it doesn't seem to flow much into right yet into the trade 
area. So there are voices certainly in favor of it, but there are others who are still saying, you know, trade isn't the solution. So I think it'll be interesting to see if that dynamic in the United States can be turned around. I think it's going to require a vision to be put on the table and be pressed, not just by the United States, but by the region as a whole. Not sure we're seeing that vision yet. So let, let's hope. And, but the conditions are right. If that vision is put out there, it's just that the, the domestic situation is really hard. The second thing is we're having a lot of Latin American countries, governments come to us who see this option, who want to take advantage of nearshoring, but they seem to be missing one factor, which is companies are the ones who make the decisions where to invest, not the U.S. government, right? So why do they, why are they in Vietnam and not in Guatemala or Honduras or somewhere else? Well, because they've made a choice, not just based on labor costs, based on many things of why to be there. And fundamentally, the Western hemisphere countries are going to need to do what makes it attractive for U.S. companies to invest. The U.S. government cannot tell companies where to invest. The Chinese government can't. The U.S. government can't. And so uh, the U.S. government can do things to make it more attractive. At the baseline, it's the countries themselves that need to ask themselves, how do we attract that investment? And I'm not sure a lot of them are willing to do what they have to do in order to attract that investment. We'll see. I hope they are. But it's a big problem, I think. And, and of course, this also raises the, the specter of whether domestic politics in Latin American countries is aligned to want to grasp these, uh, these opportunities. Alvaro? Yeah, I just wanted to add to what Steve said. I think he's right about the messiness of U.S. politics currently. But, but I think what I would say is, what we're seeing is also a change in economic policy in the United States domestically. That is basically, I think, also changing the direction in, in important respects with a much more active role of the state in public investment. I mean, if Biden, if the Biden administration gets what it's proposed in terms of its infrastructure deal, for example, and all the plans that it has domestically, it will be probably the most important public investment since the Great Society with Johnson. And I think that's taking a lot of bandwidth of the government. Uh, so I think it's shifted its attention somewhat from trade relations and, and to some extent, and it's running the global economy, to domestic economic policy. And so I think that uh, what Shannon was suggesting is right in that there will be a lot of opportunities because the Biden administration also has this uh, interest in reshoring for the reasons she pointed out. And if we look at Biden's executive order on global supply chains, I think that's also very clear that, you know, there's uh, an interest beyond the pandemic and maybe even beyond national security, that there is really the, the beginning of a different industrial policy or of a new industrial policy for the U.S. And so... That opens up opportunities for countries in Latin America, but those opportunities need to be actively sought uh, after by these countries. Maybe you will see the trade agreements they currently have. I mean, that's, I think, a very clear case for Mexico. I don't see yet uh, a clear strategy on how to use these opportunities or how to think about how to become like a, a supplier of some in some of these areas. But that's going to be definitely an opportunity to take advantage of. I, I, th I think that's really interesting. If I can paraphrase you, Alvaro, it, what, what you're saying is that 
in the United States, perhaps trade policy has become subordinate to industrial policy. If not subordinate, yet to some extent, it's now being thought of as a complement to yeah. uh, sort of much more robust domestic economic policy where the state plays a more important role. And, and that's connected to the emphasis on you know, improvements in workers' well-being and the creation of jobs. So much more emphasis on work and workers than on consumer welfare. I think that's very clear. And so, yes, trade policy would try to make that uh, happen also. There's one final issue that I want to get your views on. We haven't talked that much about EU-Mercosur. We have, however, flagged that it has been negotiated. But of course, it's in uh, it's at risk of not going anywhere anytime soon because of concerns from the European side about the climate policies. And the EU is very actively now connecting its trade agenda with the climate agenda. There's a discussion inside Europe about setting up a carbon border adjustment mechanism that's going to have massive trade implications. The United States is talking about some sort of a carbon border tax. And it leads me to raise this question, how the region views the upcoming green transition. Is this something that Latin America, and of course we're going to generalize hopelessly, but is this something that the region is prepared for? Shannon? You know, I think on the political side, there hasn't been much or definitely enough thought about it. But the building blocks for Latin America to take advantage of the green transition are there. So this is a region that for a whole host of regions already has a pretty clean energy matrix out there because of hydro, because of renewables and the like. It's also a region in general that has a, a ton of potential. So wind and solar and geothermal knowledge, there's a lot of potential here for Latin America to build on an already pretty green energy matrix. So that all is good. We also are seeing trillions of dollars flowing around the world desperate for ESG investments. So investing environmentally friendly areas. And it's not just the dedicated funds. It's, you know, big players like BlackRock say that they're going to consider these issues on all of their investments and all of their funds going forward. So I think there's a huge opportunity for Latin America to gain a lot of the money they need for infrastructure and for other things in this green sort of pillar or this green vertical that that is appearing and for the money that's happening. That said, today, you have the two biggest economies moving away from a greener future. So in Mexico, you have a government that's doubling down on fossil fuels, is building and buying refineries, um, and is shutting off a lot of the renewable projects that were there. In Brazil, as we talked about earlier with the Mercosur EU project, we see a government that is really turning away from a more environmentally friendly type of policies and the like. So I think there is a challenge there. And the one thing I would say for Latin America is if they don't sort of embrace this green tech, green transition, it's coming much faster than anybody in the region thinks. And so it's coming on two levels. Rem, you mentioned, you know, it's coming on the government levels. The EU is talking about a carbon border adjustment tax. So goods that might come in from Latin America, you know, if the energy matrix is dirtier, they're going to have to pay something. The U.S. has started talking about it as well, which would be very significant, particularly for Mexico, given its dependence on trade with the United States. But the other player here are companies. And as we lead up to Glasgow and COP26, which is going to happen in November, most of the Fortune 500 companies around the world have made carbon neutral pledges that they will change their own manufacturing supply chain and make it much cleaner than in the past. And so 
if Latin America wants to keep the manufacturing they have or expand the manufacturing they have from a lot of these big global companies, they're going to have to help those companies meet those pledges that they've made to shareholders, that they've made to the world. And that, I think, is a challenge. So there's huge opportunities. There's building blocks for this green energy transition that Latin America can take advantage of. But I don't think the political leadership is moving that direction today. Thanks very much for that, Shannon. Steve? Just to add, to underline one thing and add another in terms of drivers of this green economy, this ESG investing, I think, is really taking off and and is going to make a big difference not only for countries just in general terms, but for companies from Latin America who are looking for investment. And I think we've seen green bonds. We've seen that those that are engaging in this from Latin America are having more success. So hopefully that will encourage other companies to get on board in Latin America and to drive you know, some of the policies in their governments. The other driver is consumers, right? Which is driving companies, which is driving governments. So uh, people are more interested in the U.S. and Europe, but also in Latin America. I think we've seen an uptick as people watched all these boxes arrive at their, at their houses. They're like, this is a lot of cardboard I'm using. You know, how do we minimize that? So I think people are becoming a little more sensitive to that. And I think that will drive some of these. But I agree with Shannon. Uh, you got you, the Latin American leadership, I think, has been focusing on maybe questions of fairness of why should we have to quit the bill when the U.S. and Europe have already done the, you know, they're already ahead. And and that's not an unfair question to ask. I mean, I think at one level that they're right to ask that question. But at another level, that's a big question. And meanwhile, people are making individual choices. Companies are making individual choices and countries and companies are going to have to ask, do we get on board or, or do we get left behind? I agree with what has been said. And I would just add that here again, we see an opportunity for policy in in trying to get ahead or be strategic about what would be what a country does to take advantage of these opportunities. In other words, Shannon was talking about Mexico and and Brazil, and I agree with her description. So is is this going to be like, are these countries or others in the region going to be just norm takers so that when they can no longer wait, they're just going to basically try to produce in the new game of green energy, or can they get ahead precisely because of the challenge Shannon Watts mentioned that Roderick has basically put so well in terms of the premature deindustrialization. So is this an area where there can be more innovation and where you can get higher return from public and private investment and therefore be an opportunity for some of these countries that want to add some value to their production? or not. It's a test, but I think that to the extent that countries wait and not seek to to take this opportunity, it'll be definitely a, a lost opportunity. And so here, I think it's, it's a challenge, but we're not seeing countries rise up to it, in my view, at least not yet. So the conditions are there. It's just an opportunity that's waiting to be grabbed through a little bit more proactive policy. Unfortunately, this is all that we have time for today. It's been absolutely insightful and, and, and really interesting getting your th- thoughts on trade integration in the Americas. Shannon O'Neill, Avaro Santos, Steve Liston, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with us. Now, if you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, please go to our website, 
at www.aig.co.uk slash gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendale Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021, or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.